0: Good morning, everyone. Please stand for the reading of God's word. I'll be reading out of Genesis, Genesis 50, 15 through 21. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you... You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. The word of the Lord.
1: Good morning, everybody. Kerwin, when you miss a couple of weeks, man, we are glad to have you back. Thanks for getting us going this morning, getting our hearts in the right place. We're going to hear from God's Word this morning, one of the remarkable stories in the Bible. And I actually want to start in the New Testament at a spot where Jesus is talking to his disciples. And I love these pictures in the Gospels. This is not Jesus' up-front teaching, this is not in the Sermon on the Mount, this is when Jesus is with his disciples and they're off by themselves and Jesus is almost giving them these little coaching moments, these little teachings that, praise God we have the Gospels, we would never know these because they were just told to a small group of people. And Jesus is telling his disciples, when somebody comes to you and they've wronged you and they repent of their sins and they ask for forgiveness, you should forgive them. And he says to his disciples, you know, we've been talking about the forgiveness thing. I'm, I'm serious about this. If somebody comes to you even seven times in the same day, you should forgive them. And his disciples' response is fascinating. If somebody told you, you must forgive someone even seven times in the same day, you must forgive them What what would your response be? Mine would probably be something like, that is totally unfair. That is so unjust. Or if I was feeling a little bit more spiritual, maybe I would say, God, would you help that person to do less of that? Would you help me to be more patient with them? Would you give me more long-suffering feelings towards that person. The disciples don't say any of those things. The disciples, when confronted with Jesus' command to forgive seven times, and elsewhere he says, seven times, 70 times. Do you know what they said? Lord, increase our faith. Isn't this fascinating? With up against the demand to forgive other people, what they think that they need from God Is faith. And so this morning, I I just want to go over this very simple question. What do faith and forgiveness have to do with each other? Why do we need more faith to forgive? That's the question. Why is it that what we really need from God to be more forgiving is more faith? So as you know from Susan's reading, we're looking at the story of Joseph this morning. And Joseph is the last character in the book of Genesis, and we've been studying Genesis for the last five or six weeks, and we've arrived at the very end of the story. And I want to just trace this arc for you from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Genesis. It starts out really good. Then it gets bad. Then it gets worse all the way to where we are. That's the whole story of Genesis. Creation, great. Adam and Eve, awesome. Then they sin. Major setback. But then their son kills their other son. Then they have family strife. Then they get separated. Then the earth is flooded. Then people are faithless. Then they give up on God. Then they fight with each other. It, this is the most dysfunctional family ever. And yet, in chapter 12, we find out that this is God's chosen family that he is going to bless and preserve, and he is going to bring life from them. And it's a reminder to us that God is working in broken families and broken relationships and sinful people from the very beginning of Scripture to the very end of Scripture. In fact, from page one to the last page, you have sinful, broken people who God is working through. and We've been looking at this story through the lens of, an, of, of a very interesting encounter that happens between Adam and Eve and God in Genesis chapter 3. When Adam and Eve sin, it says their eyes were opened and they realized that they were naked. and If you go back and listen to the message on Adam and Eve, we, we really looked at this concept of this is not just an embarrassment that is external. This is The Bible telling us they at once realized that they were sinful. They were on the wrong side of God and they had nothing to cover themselves with. They were exposed. They were guilty. They were ashamed. They were looking for some way to be right with God. And so what did they do? They sewed together fig leaves for themselves to cover their shame and their guilt. And God, when he comes to them, sees the inadequacy of these fig leaves. And he creates a covering for them so that they can be back in the presence of God. In fact, the whole biblical story follows this storyline of all of our fig leaves, our attempts to manage our dysfunction and to cover up our sin and to present ourselves to the world in a way that maybe we could be acceptable, in a way that keeps us from having to be exposed before God. All of these fig leaves are answered when Jesus Christ comes and clothes us in the righteous garments of his own life so that we can be reunited with God. In Genesis, this fig leaf theme runs all the way through, and we've looked at every one of these characters who tries to manage something about them to make them acceptable to God and other people. Some of them get it right. They realize that you can never actually do that until you come face-to-face with God. And some of them get it horribly wrong, and they go their whole life like Jacob last week until they finally wrestle with God and receive the blessing that they've been longing for. Now, I I recap all of that to, to, to bring you to the place where you can see what happens in the story of Joseph. The story of Genesis is like one building plot that gets more and more intense and worse and worse and worse, almost like something that is infected that is just growing and getting more and more painful until the very end of this story, the tension is released. And the tension is released in the Joseph story when Joseph forgives his brothers. See, the answer to the whole story arc of human history is an act of forgiveness. In fact, the only way to release the tension that we feel in our lives because we live in a sinful world is the gift of God's forgiveness and our forgiveness of other people. See, Joseph... I read through the whole Joseph story, and one little unique feature of Genesis is, as you go throughout Genesis, the narratives actually get longer. So you have Adam and Eve, that's only about two chapters. Then you have Cain and Abel, two chapters. Abraham now is several chapters, and his kids are longer and longer. The Joseph story starts all the way back in chapter 37. And it goes to the end of the book. And so if you just read through Joseph's life, you get a wonderful picture of what he was like. And I have to tell you, Joseph is an underrated character in the Bible. Because if you just read his life, you see immediately what an amazing person he was. But he lived in a world that was not very different than our world. In fact, he he lived in a world similar to ours where forgiveness was not something that was socially acceptable. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but we are increasingly living in a world where forgiveness is socially unacceptable. We, we like to pay lip service to forgiveness, especially if we're the people that need to be forgiven. But if you look at the trends in our world today, so many of them revolve around this idea that wrongs must be punished. And, and there's not actually enough punishment in the world to, to balance out all the wrongs in the world. So if you, if you look at our culture, we're a culture that has assumed Christian values that are no longer being demonstrated. So what you have is two things that are going like this, where we might take for granted the fact of forgiveness, but we're actually seeing a lot of resistance to forgiveness. So what, what do I mean by this? Well, a, a lot of the polarization in our culture is built around this idea of punishing wrongdoing. Somebody is wrong. It's not just that they've done something wrong, it's that they are wrong. And the question you have to confront is, what can you possibly do about that? It's like every wrong is the beginning of an infinite trajectory that can never truly be erased. Think about all the things we're arguing about as a society right now. I'm just talking broadly. Things like, Race, things about sexuality, things about history, things about multiculturalism. Canceling, for example, is a great example of this. Sometimes canceling is wrong-headed and there isn't a wrong there, but a lot of times it starts with a wrong. And now this person needs to be taken away from everybody else as a way of trying to atone for something. And so much so that people who are not really Christian are noticing this. So Liz Brunig, who is a writer for the New York Times Tweeted at one point, there's something unsustainable about an environment that demands constant atonement for wrongs, but actively disdains the very idea of forgiveness. Now when she tweeted this, the comments were so incendiary that she had wronged survivors, victims, people who had been abused, that she ended up deleting it but you can't delete it. You can never get rid of it. It's been said. The wrong has been perpetuated. We, we live in a culture now that has a very acute sense of justice, but no idea how to absolve for sin. And I, want, I just say that not to throw stones at our culture because you would almost expect that to be true, but just to remind you that we can't take for granted anymore that we're gonna learn forgiveness by osmosis, or that we're going to learn forgiveness because it's the culturally and socially acceptable thing to do. In fact, the only reason you should forgive someone is if you believe what we're going to talk about this morning. If you have faith in what God has done through Jesus Christ, you are free to forgive anyone. But what our culture is finding out right now, without God, it is impossible to truly forgive someone. So Joseph lives in a world like this, and what we read in Joseph's story is that there are unique spiritual resources from God that if you have repented of your sin and you have trusted in Christ and you're a Christian, you have been given a deposit of spiritual resources that enable you to break the chain of wrongdoing in your life, to take a whole string of injustice and release the tension at the end through forgiveness. In uh, looking at forgiveness this way, I would recommend this book, Forgive, by Tim Keller. This is the last book Tim Keller wrote before he died, and it might be his best book. It is just phenomenal. He is so good at seeing a cultural trend and getting ahead of it, letting us know, hey, this is where things are going. Anybody can write about cultural trends that have already happened, but Keller is so good at saying, hey, if you're feeling this, this is where it's going. And so I recommend it to you. Our elders have read through this over the last year or so. It's brought about so many good conversations. And I want to just turn your attention because he gives such an important definition of forgiveness. So, so when we talk about forgiveness biblically, what are we even talking about? And this book has convicted me that in my own life, and I would imagine in a lot of your lives, we're not really practicing biblical forgiveness. We're practicing some kind of cheap look-alike, but not true forgiveness. What what is forgiveness? There are four components of forgiveness. Number one, name the wrong truthfully. Be clear about a wrong that has been committed. One way that we short circuit forgiveness is when somebody does something wrong and they come and apologize, and you said, "No, that no, 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 don't, that wasn't even wrong. That it wasn't even. It was actually me. It was." A, we love to do this because it's a it's an easy temporary way of releasing the tension with somebody. Oh, no, 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 it wasn't wrong, it was a misunderstanding. No, actually, sometimes it's just wrong. Like what they did was wrong. And the first step to forgiveness is there has to be a wrong. The biblical word for this would be sin. There has to be a sin in order for there to be forgiveness. And when we try to erase sin, we erase forgiveness. There can be no forgiveness without an identifiable wrong that has been committed. In fact, you can't be forgiven by God until you come and repent of your sins. Not, God, this was all a big misunderstanding, the times have changed, I'm a pretty good person. No, you have to go and name what you have done before God, repent of your sins so that you can be forgiven. And the same is true with other people. When we've done something to someone else that's sinful, we need to get good at naming what that actually is. You know, when, when I go to Laura, which she, she, her ears might have perked up with that seven times a day because that has happened in our house before, and I go to her and I say, hey, I shouldn't have said that. I was just stressed. I'm having a bad day. Would you forgive me? That's not real repentance. Repentance is, I said this and it was selfish. It was mean-spirited. It was ugly. It was not becoming of a marriage that I want to glorify God. Would you forgive me? This is real repentance. So the first thing is you, you have to actually name the sin or the wrong truthfully secondly and this is on the person who's forgiving you must identify with the wrongdoer as a fellow sinner we're going to talk about this more in the joseph story because one of the big barriers to forgiveness is pride is pride that i don't see myself on the same level as the person that i'm forgiving so name the sin identify with the wrongdoer number three absorb the debt Absorb the debt. This is maybe problem area number two in forgiveness. If you're going to forgive someone, that means that you are going to pay or forego the debt of getting vengeance against that person. So sometimes we forgive people and we say, oh, forgive, but I will never forget. Okay, that could be good, could be bad, as we're gonna see. That could be a way for you to say that you forgive without ever really forgiving somebody. We absorb the debt, which means we don't bring it back up. That means once it's paid for, it's paid for. This is, this is a huge relationship killer, marriage killer, relationship killer. If you give your forgiveness, but then the next time it's convenient, you call in the debt. You know, well, you know, you, you, you did speak pretty harshly to me. I asked for forgiveness for that. Yeah, but I have not forgotten I have not forgotten that. That is not forgiveness. Forgiveness pays the debt. They absorb the debt. You pay it yourself. Forgiveness is costly because it means that we are taking what we could have done, which is seek revenge for the wrong that's been done, and we pay the debt ourselves. Number four, begin the process of reconciliation and restoration. The, the biggest hangup, I think, in our culture with forgiveness is that forgiveness and justice cannot coexist together. If you forgive, you're committing an injustice. And as we'll see from the Joseph story, actually forgiveness and justice go together perfectly because trust and forgiveness are not the same thing. Forgiveness and allowing yourself to be a doormat are not the same thing. Forgiveness and an immediate restoration like nothing ever happened, those are not the same thing. What we do is we begin the process of reconciling and restoring the relationship. Laura and I were listening to a great podcast this week, and they were talking about parenting kids. And the the podcast was talking about the difference between discipline and discipleship. Discipline and discipleship, which are from the same root word. And we use them pretty interchangeably, but what they meant was when you have a kid who does something wrong, And you get them to stop doing that thing that's wrong. That's only half the process of discipleship. Discipleship reminds us that it's not a matter of just behaving. It's a matter of getting right with God again. And so what we teach kids is not just, hey, stop doing that. But once you stop doing that, here's how you apologize. Here's how you repent. And then here's how we bring you back into fellowship with God the family or with the group or with the class. And, and the same is true for us. It's easy to see on a little kid level. They say, you know, if your little kid falls down into a puddle and you stand them back up, you've done very little for them until you've cleaned them up and put them in clean clothes again and sent them back on their way. And, and the translation for us is easy to see. If you've just stopped doing something wrong, you haven't really restored the relationship. But restoration takes time. So it's one thing to talk about this in abstraction and say, these are the principles of forgiveness. It's another thing to see it in real life. And so for the remainder of the sermon, I want to turn your attention to the way that this plays out in Joseph's life. And you're you're going to see all four of these principles play out in his life. So what do we learn about forgiveness from Joseph? The first thing we learn from him is that he was able to forgive because he had seen God's power in his life. If you read from chapter 37 all the way to chapter 50, one of the themes that will stick out to you is the radically God-centered vision that Joseph has. Everything that happens to this guy, he's talking about God. Every time somebody is evil towards him, every time something bad happens to him, he doesn't look at the circumstance first, he looks at God first. And because of that, he sees God's power in everything that happens in his life. So it's easy on the one hand to find God in the good things, like when something's going great in your life and it's a huge spiritual boost for you and you feel like, man, me and God, we are just awesome. Things are going great. He is blessing me. This is wonderful. And then when things go wrong, we despair like, where's God? Things were going so good and now God has disappeared. Other people are wired slightly differently, it's, you can blame God for the bad things. Like, I know why this is happening. God is out for me. God does not love me. He's disciplining me. But then when things go great, it's all you. You take credit for all the good things. And Joseph is actually the proper perspective of, God is with me in the bad times. He is teaching me something in the bad times. And everything good I've ever done is a result of God's love and grace in my life. So, for example, when... Joseph is sold by his brothers to, he's actually sold twice, and he gets to Egypt and he gets into Potiphar's house. And after he's been there in Potiphar's house for a little while, he ends up in prison, which we'll talk about in a minute. And when he's in prison, he's down there with a couple of other guys, a baker and a cupbearer, and they both have, one of them has a dream about the people in there. And he interprets the dream, the guy forgets him, and finally he gets into Pharaoh's court, and Pharaoh says, I hear you're a dream interpreter. Well, Joseph is a dream interpreter. He's done this as a kid, he's done this in the prison, he's getting ready to do it, but you know what? That's not how Joseph sees his life at all. Joseph's response is not, I have interpreted a few dreams in my day. It's all interpretations belong to God. That's what he tells Pharaoh. Now, this is not, like, seeker-sensitive. Pharaoh doesn't believe in God. But Joseph, his view is so God-centered that whoever's asking, he says, it's not me that's an interpreter of dreams. God is the interpreter of dreams. And Pharaoh even pushes back on him and says, okay, so are you going to give me an interpretation of this dream? And Joseph says, God is going to give you an interpretation of this dream. Every encounter Joseph has, he reframes around God's power. His life is oriented with God at the very center of his life. Not just in the events, but in his own heart. He knew what it looked like to see God working through him, which enabled him to overcome the first barrier to forgiveness, which is pride. The reason many times we are not willing to forgive someone is pride. Withholding forgiveness, holding a grudge, vowing to get revenge is a downstream consequence of pride. Because it's all about you. Grudge holding is all about you. And I love people, there's a great quote, and I think this is partially true, where people say, you know, holding a grudge is like drinking poison And hoping the other person dies. You know, I think that's true to an extent, but it undersells something. Holding a grudge feels great. It feels so, or otherwise we wouldn't do it. Everybody's looking at me like, you've never done this before. It feels amazing to hold a grudge because it is so self-gratifying. I deserve this. I shouldn't be treated that way. I am better than that person. That's what grudge holding ultimately is. I am going to make that person feel as bad as I have felt. <laughs> that If you feel that way, you will never be able to forgive somebody Amen. because it's all about you. It's all about you. And what Joseph sees is, actually, it's all about God. It's all about what God is doing through his story. He, he never sees himself as above other people, even though we would read the story and be like, he is so much better than these people He is so much godlier than his brothers. He is so much more faithful. He is so much more character than Potiphar's wife. He is so much wiser than Pharaoh. But when you ask Joseph about it, the craziest thing happens. When his brothers, who sold him into slavery, left him for dead... Come because they are in need of grain. So what happens in the Joseph story is he, he goes to prison. He interprets Pharaoh's dream. He gets promoted to the second in all of Egypt. And he is running things. He's collecting all this grain. And then a famine happens. All the world is coming to Egypt to buy grain. And the famine hits the land of Canaan, the land of Israel, his father. And his brothers come to Egypt to buy grain, but they don't know that it's him. So they come into his court and they're asking for grain, and he doesn't reveal himself to them immediately. In fact, he sends them on all these little errands, right? This is, trust is worked back gradually. He, he is allowing them to earn back his trust by doing all these things. And eventually, in chapter 45, you have this big reveal of Joseph. It's me, and his brothers are, their minds are blown that it's him, and he forgives them, and it's wonderful, and they move to Egypt, and then his father dies, and when his father dies, which is the passage that Susan read for us this morning, his brothers get kind of nervous. They're like, was this all an act? You know, was this just to keep dad happy? And now that dad has died, he's actually gonna turn and kill all of us. So in Genesis chapter 50, that's that's the scene. And his brothers, they come to him after they've buried their dad, they come to him and they send a message saying, your father gave us this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. This is perfect formula of forgiveness. Notice they named the sin. This is kind of an easy one. Okay, they did sell him and leave him for dead. It's like hard to massage that one around, but he says, please forgive us. And and Joseph wept when they spoke to him. And his brothers came and fell down before him and said, we are your servants. And Joseph said, do not fear. Now, listen to this. I don't want you to miss this. Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? This this is maybe the most insightful line in this whole story. Am I in the place of God? What's the implication of that? Only God could stand in the place of judgment over sin. Right? I'm not talking about identifying what is sin, I'm talking about punishing sin. Only God can do that. So Joseph, he's not prideful because he knows that for him to hold a grudge against them, for him to seek revenge against them, is actually to usurp what only God can do. Only God is the one who can ultimately bring judgment. In the end. So for Joseph, it makes total sense. He's going to forgive them because to do anything else would be to stand in the place of God. And his vision of God has guided him through his whole life. He knows what is God's place, and he knows what is his place. It is God's place to bring justice and vengeance, and it is his place to forgive and reconcile with his brothers. Now, this gives us hope because if that's the way the universe works, then there will be ultimate justice. See, forgiveness is, is not opposed to justice because if we forgive others because we know that God is the one who can take vengeance, God is the one who can make it right, God is the one who will make all things balance in the end. He is going to weigh the scales, and if evil has been done, he is going to punish it, and if righteousness has been done, he's going to reward it. God is going to make things right in the end. Then forgiveness and justice can go together perfectly. It's not a miscarriage of justice, It's a transfer of justice. I will forego the imperfect justice that I could try to bring, and in doing so, become a sinner myself so that God can bring perfect justice later. Am I in the place of God, he said? And then he took his brothers in. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones and he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. It's the ultimate picture of forgiveness. He had seen the power of God, and therefore, he was able to forgive his brothers. Second thing, he depended on God's provision, so he was able to forgive his brothers. There's a theme in this story that if you read through, you'll see four times in the text that says, when something bad happens to Joseph, it says, but the Lord was with Joseph. So he gets down in the pit, his brothers throw him down there, but the Lord was with Joseph. He goes to Potiphar's house, and he's doing really well. The Lord is with Joseph. What happens in Potiphar's house, most people know this story, is Potiphar's wife sees Joseph. And actually, this section in chapter 40, if you look at the beginning of chapter 40, verse 6, it says, he, when he is in the house with, oh, it's, it's in chapter 39. When he's in there, it says, "...now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance." I was in a high school small group, and one of the only things I remember is there was a guy who claimed this as his life verse, (laughs) whose name was Joseph. Joseph was well-built and handsome, I think it says in the NIV. It's a wonderful life verse. And she sees that this is true, and she throws herself at him. He resists, but she frames him. And so they come and arrest him, and he ends up in prison. And you're thinking to yourself, okay, when he's in Potiphar's house, things are going great, the Lord is with him. And from a human perspective, this happens. He is totally innocent. He was the right guy. He gets thrown into prison. What is God possibly doing in this situation? And when he gets into prison, you know what the text says? But the Lord was with Joseph in prison. The Lord is as with Joseph in Potiphar's house as he is with him in prison. Joseph realizes that God's Plan and provision for your life may not make sense to you. Because what ends up happening in the narrative of this story is Joseph was doing great in Potiphar's house, but if you know at the end of the story, it is nothing compared to what he's going to be doing in Pharaoh's house. And from that perspective, it might be one of those things like, well, if you do really well there, you could make some connections at the Egyptian Rotary Club, you could get into Pharaoh's leadership, and that would just be like a great up-and-to-the-right way of getting there. God's like, no, I've got a better idea. How about I put you in Pharaoh's prison, which is already in the palace, so that when he has a dream that he needs interpreted, you're already there. It's perfect. I'm gonna take you right there, you'll be in prison for a little bit, and then you're gonna be the second most powerful guy in Egypt. That is God's logic, but it is not our logic. And Joseph, the entire time he's in prison, trust for God's provision for his life it would have been so easy for Joseph to think I'm a pretty good manager I'm a great business guy I am awesome at this and so I have ascended to these positions but instead he knows whatever has happened has been God providing for him all the way through the story this is really important because the second barrier to forgiveness is scarcity believing that if I forgive someone, then I will be at a loss that cannot be repaid. I I will be at an emotional loss, I will be at a financial loss, I'll be at a relational loss. Keller talks about the costliness of forgiveness in this book. He says, forgiveness is is inwardly giving up the desire to get even. To forgive is to give the perpetrator a gift they do not in any way deserve. In love, you are absorbing the debt that they owe you. Here you are walking truly in Christ's footsteps. Forgiveness is always a form of voluntary suffering that brings about the greater good. A scarcity mindset I have to produce for myself will never enable you to forgive. The only way to forgive is to see that God is the one who actually supplies all of your needs. He is the one who provides Everything for you. And if he has provided thus far, he will provide if you forgive. Amen. One of my favorite stories of forgiveness in the Bible is in Acts chapter 7. In fact, it's one of the only places that Joseph is brought up in the New Testament is in Stephen's speech in Acts chapter 7. So Stephen is an early deacon, and he is preaching and they charge him with blasphemy, and so they bring him out before the Pharisees, and he gives this incredible sermon talking about how throughout all of history they have been on the wrong side of things, and they killed Jesus, and they need to repent for it, and as you can imagine, it doesn't go that well, so they drag him outside, and they begin to stone him and kill him, and in the end of Acts chapter seven, something remarkable happens. It says, now when they heard these things, They were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. And he saw the heavens open and beheld the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said to them, Behold, I see the heavens open, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And this makes them even angrier. So they cry out with a loud voice, and they stop their ears, and they throw him on the ground and stone him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul, who will become Paul later. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord Do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. This is profound forgiveness. And and in fact, it's not something that Stephen even could have thought up on his own. He sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father, and he must have remembered, or or maybe I think this is not in the text, I wonder if Jesus was cheering for him in this moment for him to forgive because when Jesus was in the same position, do you remember what he did? He said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. He forgives the people that are nailing him to a cross. So his follower, Stephen, who faced with his own death and on the ground, curled up in a ball with these big stones coming at him, looks up and sees Jesus and thinks, what what would Jesus do in this situation? He would forgive. He would forgive. And in fact, he sees that when Jesus forgave and died and rose from the dead, he sees him in all of his power and his glory at the right hand of the Father. And Stephen must have thought, if I can get that, it's totally worth forgiving these people here. If God is going to provide for me, if that's where I'm going, if that's what's going to happen to me, if that's the kind of God I serve, then I can forgive here. The debt to me is nothing compared to what I've received in Jesus. Here's the last thing. Joseph trusted all along in God's plan. In chapter 45, when he reveals himself to his brothers, he has them come before him and he's he's had them do a few things, and and finally he can't even bear it anymore. He says, I am Joseph, and is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. And Joseph is going to narrate the way that he sees this story happening. He says, come near to me, please. And they came near. He says, I am your brother Joseph, who you sold into Egypt. And now, don't be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. But God sent me before you to preserve your life. Your plan was to sell me and get rid of me. God's plan was to send me ahead of you to save your life. For the famine has been in the land for two years, and there are five years yet to come. And God sent me before you, for you are a remnant on the earth and to keep you alive for many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me like a father to Pharaoh and lord of all of his house and ruler over all of his land. Joseph saw God's plan for his life, and so he was able to forgive. God turned evil into good. God took the feelings that must have simmered when Joseph was sitting in a prison cell in Egypt, and he reframed his vision to show him that he had a plan for Joseph that he was going to provide for Joseph, that his power was going to enable Joseph. And when the time came, Joseph was able to forgive his brothers. So I want to return to the opening question. Do you have the faith to forgive? The faith to forgive is going to mean that you have faith that your sins have been forgiven, that, that when you repent before God, he will forgive you and release you from the penalty of sin, that that he will absorb the debt in his own son. He has paid the debt for your sin if you are in him. Do you have the faith to believe that by forgiving other people, by modeling what Jesus has commanded us to do, that God will provide the difference for you? Do you have the faith to believe that when something terrible happens to us and we relinquish the right to get even, God has a plan even in the midst of our pain and disappointment. See, our prayer is not, God, make me more patient. It's not, God, make me care less. It's not, God, make this hurt less. It's, God, give me the faith to forgive. Let us pray. Lord, this is a huge, huge ask for us. Would you give us the faith to forgive Others, for little things, for big things. Lord, would you help us to model in our own lives something that is becoming so radically countercultural. And, and not just that, Lord, that we would look good. Every time we forgive, it's like when Saul was standing there and saw Stephen forgive. I wonder if that was the first time things started to move in his heart. That when people see us and they're forgiven by us or they see us forgive others, that they might get a glimpse of our Father who is in heaven who forgives everyone who turns to him. Father, would you help us to love each other in a way that leaves room for forgiveness, true biblical forgiveness that releases the wrong, that restores a relationship. Help us to be a community of people who get really, really good at forgiving each other. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As you stand and we continue in worship, we're doing communion this morning. And the way we do communion here is you'll come forward and tear a piece of the bread and dip it in the cup. And I want to say one thing about communion this morning. C- communion oftentimes is seen as a moment to confess your sins and then come to the what, what usually is called an altar to receive forgiveness. Actually, it's slightly different than that. We confess our sins anytime. We can confess before God anytime. We can confess now. We can confess in our quiet time. We can confess anytime, and we can receive his forgiveness. What communion is is the follow-up to forgiveness. See, when Joseph forgave his brothers, it says, and he spoke kindly and provided for them and treated them well. That's what's happening at this table. This is not an altar where Christ is re-sacrificed. This is a feast table that celebrates a family that's been reunited. And so if you need to confess something this morning, especially if you need to forgive somebody this morning, do that and then come to the table as a sign of your renewed and reconciled relationship. Come to the table celebrating that God is providing for us even after he has forgiven us. That after God forgives us, he doesn't have a lingering, angry, awkward relationship with us. He has a relationship of a delighted father with his children. So as you come this morning, come to celebrate at the Lord's table that we have been forgiven and we have been restored through Jesus Christ. Come to the table of the Lord.